0: Hey, y'all. Welcome to Beyond Consulting, the podcast dedicated to helping its listeners navigate a career after consulting. I'm Stephen Haug, host of Beyond Consulting and director at ECA Partners. Each week on the podcast, we host folks who have spent some time in consulting, but have since made a pivot or a career change. Before we get started, I want to thank ECA Partners for sponsoring Beyond Consulting. ECA is an executive search and on-demand consultant firm specializing in former consultants and private equity. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Jay Dalwani, Chief Marketing Officer at Wink and former Deloitte Consultant. Jay, welcome to Beyond Consulting and ECA headquarters.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Very happy to be here.
0: Good. Well, you know, first thing that I expect folks to to notice whenever they look at your career is is the, is the speed. Um, so would f- love to start back in toward the college days and learn a bit about how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been quite a journey. And I say, you know, if I went back 10 years ago to when I started college, I don't think I would have ever imagined myself in this position. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I felt like it could be anything from consulting to accounting. I was an accounting major um, to entrepreneurship. Uh, come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I thought that was definitely a possible route for me to take. Um, but I always told myself the one thing that I would never do is marketing. Um, and at the time I was just a young ignorant kid and I probably didn't respect the craft, um, but here I am. Uh, so it's been an it's been interesting journey, um, taken a lot of different paths from consulting to startup to operations, um, to the marketing role that I have today. Um, but I can say that I've always optimized for feeling passionate about my role um, and learning as much as possible. I'm somebody who gets incredibly bored um, if I don't love waking up for work every single day. So that's kind of what I've been optimizing for uh, ever since I started my professional career five years ago. Um, and I'm incredibly happy and proud of uh, where we've come and uh, excited for what's next as well. Great, right out of USC, you went to Deloitte. I spent a couple years uh, interning uh, for Deloitte, both after my sophomore and junior years. Um, and then I chose to come back in the same exact role, full-time capacity right out, right out of school.
0: Good. So spent a couple of years with them. And then it looks like you jumped into the startup world, I would say.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. I ended up going to Bird. Actually, very interesting story. When I was in consulting, I did not know what I wanted to do next, but I was traveling a lot. Um, Atlanta, New York, Ohio, you name it. I went there mostly on the East Coast. And I found myself every morning and every evening taking Bird scooters to and from work instead of hotels. And it was just a product that I fell in love with and was incredibly passionate about. I'm like, hey, this is a company I'd be really proud to work with. So decided to make the hop on over. Had no idea what I was doing in startup world, but um was passionate about the product and wanted to pursue that.
0: Good. So Bird for a little while. And then where did you end up after Bird?
1: Yeah. So after Bird, I went to a vehicle subscription startup called Fair. They're a soft bank back company. They actually recently sold um, but they essentially offered consumers the ability to uh, subscribe to a car straight from your phone, delivered straight to your door, um, as well as providing an offering for ride drivers to rent a car by the week and help make, help them make a living.
0: Perfect. And then after that, you're at Wink, where you are right now as the chief marketing officer. Tell us a little bit about what Wink does, and then we can dive into your, your role specifically.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. So Wink is building a portfolio of brands in the beverage space for the next generation of consumers. Wink originally started out as a wine club really dedicated uh, against millennial and Gen Z consumers about 10 years ago. And you know, one of the things that our founders had noticed was that the entire wine business is so pedantic. It takes so much knowledge to actually know what you're doing. And for those of you who have ever been in a grocery store looking at hundreds of labels, not knowing what to pick, we all understand that. And so we really sought to demystify the world of wine, um, really make it accessible, um, really make it focused on occasion based, you know, enjoying a product with your friends um, for specific occasions. And over time, you know, the, Wink started building its own products and brands and realized that those products had a lot of traction. So today we distribute our products not only through our wine club, but also through traditional retailers um, in stores and restaurants all across the country. So we really seek to uh, to sell in a diversified omni-channel way.
0: Great. That is exciting. And I know right now you're marketing officer. That's not how you started at, at Wink, is that right?
1: That's correct. I joined as a director of customer experience. Um, you know, When I was at FAIR, I focused a lot on customer retention, um, and that's very similar to what I was focusing on at Wink, um, really focusing on our website experience, CRM, customer support, essentially everything we needed to do to improve the retention and LTV of our consumers. I was in that role for about a couple of months. Um, I then moved into the general manager role for the Wink.com, um, the direct-to-consumer business, essentially overseeing everything from acquisition to retention, conversion funnels, and the overall p of that business. I was also in that role for a couple of months, and then moved into the head of growth, uh, head of growth capacity, where I de- directly oversaw all of our marketing efforts, in addition to the p of the business. And then eventually, about six months ago, into the chief marketing officer role, where kind of maintained all of the direct consumer and marketing responsibilities, but have also taken on um, omni-channel brand building for our brand. So also really focused on how we can scale through our wholesale channels, as well as other DTC functions like engineering, analytics, creative, and brand.
0: How many brands does does Wink have at this point?
1: A few dozen, at least over, probably over 50 brands. I'd say there's a core portfolio of about five to seven brands that we really focus on in an omnichannel way and the rest are really there to enhance the direct-to-consumer subscription offering.
0: So ended up as a chief marketing officer, but you mentioned didn't think that that was where you're going to end up. want to rewind a little bit and go back to your consulting days. First day at Deloitte, what were your thoughts then?
1: how long is it going to take for me to make partner (laughs) was my first thought yeah i mean you ask anybody that i had worked with at deloitte um, they would all tell you that i was gonna i was gonna spend my entire career there and i was gonna become partner because i had spent two internships there i knew exactly what i was doing i was passionate about it and really you know kind of ingrained in the work and i always sought out to pursue that career path i mean i think one thing about me is that i get bored very easily so a year and a half in i ended up getting bored. But I think when I, when I came in there, I, I really came in with the intention of uh, making it through the partner track as quickly as possible. And if you ask the people around me, they'd probably say the same thing.
0: We've heard from a few of the folks on, on the podcast that the best thing to do as a consultant is to you know, do do the consulting work. And what I mean by that is two different types of mentalities that we see from some consultants. One is they, they start there, they're their consultants, they're working their way up the ranks they're doing the work the other group see consulting as a stepping stone to something else not that either of those one's bad one's good but it sounds like you were in it for the long haul at first is that right
1: yeah that's what i thought that's absolutely what i thought
0: do you think that that contributed to your success in consulting
1: yeah i think so i mean i think the first step i mean what what did always uh, kind of terrified me about consulting is the amount of time that it would take um, to actually become partner Um, and you know I was just really focused on one step at a time um, so really wanted to make it to the next level as early as possible and tried as hard as I could to get there at the same time I was having fun and I was learning a lot Um, I really enjoyed showing up to work every day which as I mentioned earlier is something that was very important to me um, and if I have that passion and if I enjoy what I'm doing, then I'm typically going to be, I'll be successful in the role um, over the course of time. So I think that definitely contributed to it a lot as well.
0: How long did you stay at Deloitte after you thought of, you know, decided to make the job?
1: Oh, as long as it took me to find a job. I remember the day that I had been promoted to consultant, which is kind of the second level at Deloitte. And I was kind of looking at the career ladder. I'm like, am I really going to have to wait another two years for the next thing? I really don't want to do that, and I immediately started looking for jobs. I'd spent a lot of time in in consulting in the healthcare space, so I was really looking in that space to start. I thought that was the industry that I would go into because it's all that I knew. But you know, when I was <laughs> when I was riding scooter a scooter one day, I was like, hey, maybe I should try this thing out. So maybe just a couple of months. I mean, uh, I pretty much knew it when I knew it. Started looking and and found my next role and moved on.
0: Good. How was the the interview process?
1: Obviously, having the consulting background and kind of the success within the firm to back it up uh, really opened up a lot of options for me. I feel like, you know, got a lot of interviews for roles that that I wanted to, 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 to talk to or to, to be in and in companies that I wanted to talk to. So definitely found that, you know, the the Deloitte experience coupled with the USC on on the resume made made that process so much easier. And a lot of firms, especially you know the big three, if you have that on your resume, you're coming in with an inherent sense of respect from anybody that, that you're talking to. And that definitely helps as a part of the process.
0: Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it sounds like things have worked out extremely well for you. Post-consulting as well, uh, an accomplished career. What's top of mind for you in your chief marketing officer role? Uh, you know, Folks in consulting, looking at different career paths, what could they expect? to be working on you know day in day out if they did go the marketing route.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I really love about my role is that and that's very different from consulting is I can materially see the difference that I'm making on a day-to-day basis. I can see my work come to life and as a CMO, I'm responsible for making the decisions that come to life. So that's something that I really enjoy about my role today that I wasn't necessarily getting out of consulting. So, I mean, the beauty of marketing is you put something out there in the world and you can immediately see consumers react to that. And to do that across kind of ads, across digital product and website experiences, across building brands, putting on events, it's an incredibly fulfilling experience. And marketing, you know, coming for, from, from someone who's very skeptical, is a lot harder than people uh-huh. think it is. It's really easy to do, but really hard to be great at because it requires such a delicate balance of, of art and science. Um, and com- coming from a consulting background and an accounting major, uh, I definitely lean towards the science side. So there's always more to master. And although I'm a CMO, I would certainly not call myself, you know, an expert or best in class. I think I'm always learning every single day, which is exactly what gets me excited about it.
0: Did you work on any marketing projects at Deloitte at all?
1: Not even close. I was doing massive technology overhauls in the healthcare system, Um, so very focused on technology consulting. It's something that Deloitte is very big in, um, very specific to that firm. But there were these massive multi-year technology projects. Um, So very, very different from from what I'm doing right now.
0: How did you get exposure to it, or or did you just see it as an interesting problem and something to to jump into? Yeah, I mean,
1: a little bit of exposure. When I originally joined Wink um, in the customer experience role, I was adjacent to the marketing function. And I think over time, as I started to learn the business a little bit more, especially in the general manager capacity, I started to see areas of opportunity where I could really bring Kind of the problem solving mentality that consulting teaches you, and data driven approach to improve the way that we did marketing. And from there, I started diving really deeply into that world. I got a lot of knowledge from podcasts, a lot of knowledge from Twitter, and I just tried to apply everything that I was learning and soaking up from the world, combining that with my kind of strategic and data-driven background to become an effective marketer.
0: So you mentioned the consulting toolkit translating very well, probably into all the roles that you've held would be my guess. What part of the toolkit wasn't there whenever you made the jump?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that consulting really helped with was soft skills soft skills and approach. So, you know, really dealing with incredibly difficult clients and partners being in there in those boardrooms, in those meetings, addressing questions that you have no clue what the answer is to or developing a presentation, anticipating all of the questions that somebody's going to ask and being able to stand up there and confidently speak to that in the moment, I think is something that uh, consulting really helped with. What was missing was how, things actually happened in startups. In consulting, there's a lot of Excel work, a lot of pre-analysis, a lot of making of perfect PowerPoint decks that are literally perfect to the pixel. And as soon as I joined Bird, I realized that a lot of that didn't matter. They just wanted to execute and they wanted to see results. So really switching from kind of this intense planning process and making a bunch of decks and doing a bunch of analyses to actually doing the work and executing was a mindset shift that I got when I, when I came into bird. I remember, um, one of the first weeks I went into a meeting my first really large cross-functional meeting. And I thought that, you know, if there's a meeting, there has to be a deck. So I stood up there with this 80 page deck and, uh, about 30 seconds in, somebody stopped me. They're like, are you new here? Because to them, it was this absolute ridiculous notion that I spent time putting together an 80-page deck. And that's when it kind of hit me that like this is not how the real world operates. So that was a little bit of a mindset shift in terms of how startups operate uh, and how work gets done and what people spend their time on uh, in companies like Bird and Wink.
0: Good. It's a different... It sounds like the pace is pretty similar. Would you say that's high speed... Um, environment both in consulting and in the startup world but just the measure for success or what you're expected to be spending your time on is quite different
1: yeah i'd say pace from like expectation of deliverables now what those deliverables are has really changed and one thing that i as i was saying really opened up my eyes was that it felt like in the startup world or in the tech space, a lot more work actually gets done. Whereas the deliverables and consulting is a lot of making up from lack of knowledge in the industry. Because in reality, you're a year or two out. You're, uh, for the most part, switching clients in different industries and different spaces. And you're spending a lot of time making up for what you don't know. Research decks, expert calls, all of these things. And over time, i uh, it was really interesting at, at, at the start where I felt like I was learning a lot. But then after that, I was like, what am I actually accomplishing here? And what's the impact that I'm actually having? And switching to like actually doing the work and driving results is what is what changed. You know, at Bird and Fair and Wink, I'm measured by KPIs and results of the business, not how pretty my decks are. So, I mean, that was incredibly refreshing for me when I made the switch.
0: Interesting. I can tell you, whenever we're interviewing consultants for various roles with with our clients, eight out of 10 times the reason, the the motivation for, for leaving a consulting firm is because they want more ownership. is what we hear often and it it sounds like that rang true with, with what you found at least even if that wasn't your motivation for for making the jump
1: yeah I I mean I think that's that's pretty true I'd also say that that's that's what a lot of people think that they want yeah and then when they're placed into that expectation and reality it's so different and Three months into Bird, it was such a culture shock. I almost quit and went back to consulting. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. This is so different. And you know, I've hired people directly out of consulting as well, and I've seen it work both ways. For a lot of people, it's a huge culture shock, and it's what they think that they want. They want more ownership. They want to deliver results. But then when they're held accountable to that, it, it becomes a little bit of a shock of yeah. like, wait, I'm actually supposed to do this. like. I don't know if this is for me. So I mean, it's what a lot of people think they want. I certainly thought that um, I almost was unsuccessful. But luckily enough, stayed along with Bird and, and eventually found my way.
0: Good. Speaking of things that, that we don't know, let's say I came to the table and my, my picture of marketing was from Mad Men. What am I missing? You know, How is it different today versus that, that image that I think a lot of us, just given pop culture, think of as marketing?
1: Yeah, I think it's almost a difference of advertising versus marketing. And I can't really speak to to the world of advertising, but most of what marketing is today, especially as you see some of these newer direct-to-consumer businesses, is, like I said, a mix of the art and the science. It's incredibly data-driven. Like We're talking about advanced analytics, regression models, attribution methodologies, coupled with consumer psychology, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what you see a little bit more in Mad Men of like, what's the consumer actually gonna relate to? What's the hook that's gonna keep them watching this this piece of creative? What's gonna make them click? What's gonna make them go down the funnel and eventually convert? I'd say, you know, 75% of it is on the data side. And once you have the data, you have to understand the limitations of it. And that's really where the creativity comes in, uh, in terms of how you actually action on that and what it's telling you versus what it's not. So I think a lot of it is, it's an incredibly data-driven, Feel to be in today. And of course, like data-driven marketing is like this buzzword that's been thrown out there for so long. But what that means in, in reality is not looking at top-level KPIs. It's really, really understanding across, you know, various consumer touch points, everything from a billboard to an ad on Facebook to something they heard their friends say to them Googling something and seeing a top 10 list, like what is the impact of each of those marketing touch points and how do you justify and attribute spend to specific channels and what does that overall funnel and journey look like? So there are some incredibly complex problems to solve. And uh, that's kind of, I think the the difference obviously in Mad Men, it's a little bit more simplified. It's focused on advertising and consumer psychology, but this whole world behind it, that's, that's been incredibly fascinating for me.
0: Interesting. The distinction between advertising, and marketing. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Do you, at Wink, do you have an advertising department? No. So what what would, uh, what's an advertising project look like versus a marketing project?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it really depends on the brand, on the types of brands that, that you look at. If you're looking at smaller e-commerce brands, which is kind of what we're very focused on, we're talking about performance marketing for the most part. And advertising is, is closer to what, you know, people define as brand marketing. Now, I believe you can kind of do both at once and kind of have brand infused into your performance marketing. But I mean, if you look at Super Bowl commercials, you look at, you know, what Apple puts out there, you look at what Nike puts out there, I'd say that's really the world of advertising. But if you look at, you know, what you see as you're scrolling through TikTok, Facebook or Instagram, that's, that's really the world of, uh, the world of marketing that I live in.
0: Right. I think that's a really helpful distinction for our listeners as well. You mentioned that you didn't touch any marketing in your consulting days. I think that's often true. What do you think consultants should be if they want to get a taste of marketing or or dive a little bit deeper into it to see if it is something that could get them excited? What could they be doing? What could they be looking into to, to help them? think through that decision.
1: Yeah. So they're probably not going to be successful at this. But um, to tell them whether or not it's something that they could be passionate about, I would encourage them to find a a product on Alibaba. I would encourage them to build a website and see if they could sell that product. And if they can do that, or if they find passion out of doing that and figuring that out, I'd say marketing is a great space to do do it in. And, And this is something that could be done in the span of 24 hours of like, let me try and do this thing and see how I can execute. I think. The easiest way to figure out if you're passionate about something is not to spend endless time reading books or articles or taking online courses. Just do it. It's so easy to execute and see how you like it.
0: If you could start your career over again, would you still jump into consulting first?
1: No, I probably wouldn't have gone to college.
0: Really? I think
1: that there's so much wasted time and opportunity cost in And obviously I'm very lucky in terms of how things turned out, but it's very possible that it would not have turned out this way. And I'm very lucky that I'm passionate about what I do now, but I could see myself also still being at Deloitte right now. And for a lot of people that is the right move and that's what they're passionate about. That's what they enjoy doing. That's not for me. I think, you know, going to college, getting a job in consulting has made me very comfortable with getting a paycheck and continuing to climb the corporate ladder. Whereas if I felt like I didn't do that, I would be a lot more entrepreneurial from the start and perhaps find myself in a similar role and position, but but obviously with the higher likelihood of, of getting there. I think the opportunity cost of, of life is just so great in those early years from you know 18 to 25 that I would have spent it a little bit differently. I would have spent it building things, building businesses, uh, knowing what I know now. But back then, I I'd probably thought that Growing up in an immigrant household, that that would probably be frowned upon. Um, and you know I was probably a little risk averse myself. So I think I would have taken my approach to life very differently. And kind of the first time where I really took a big risk of not climbing the corporate ladder and just doing something because it's what I wanted to do and what I was passionate about was when I made the hop from, from Deloitte to Bird. I took a 50% pay cut, but it was one of the most rewarding years of my life. And I wish I did more of that younger.
0: Good. I think that's helpful advice because we often hear this when we're talking to folks in consulting. The career path is laid out fairly nicely. You, you've seen people go through it already. There's dates on your calendar when you can expect promotions and, and raises and those sort of things. Even you know, outside of the startup world, other companies lack a lot of that. A lot of that structure, some in positive ways, some in not so positive ways. So I think the idea of, or, of getting comfortable with that risk for the sake of not only the possible upside, right, but also just the opportunities to to learn is a great piece of advice. Because what I'm taking from your your thoughts about not going to college is that jumping from one role to another in this era where entrepreneurship is, is valued very highly and whenever Failure is is often, can be a positive on a, on a resume as well too. Uh, and the idea is that moving from one world role to another is such a large learning curve in a lot of industries that you're gonna fail at it anyway, and you're gonna have to just learn it all in the first six months there. So why not just start by doing it rather than spending a, a few years?
1: Yeah, there's no better value, uh, more valuable learning than, than trying to do something and failing at it. It's very possible that I would have chosen not to go to college tried to start a couple of businesses, been a colossal failure and ended up going to college anyway. But I think that's okay. At least you're not wondering what if, and at least you would have learned a lot. And so yeah, I think, you know, in a world where everything is available online, um, an expert in a space you're passionate about is just one cold message away. I don't think there's any reason not to, to, um, to start to take some risks and figure out what you're passionate about and start to execute against it.
0: How long was Wink around before you joined?
1: Waste's been around for about 10 years. Um, I'd say it really came on the map uh, during the pandemic uh, when everyone realized that you could actually get alcohol delivered to your door, and wine subscription model totally took off. Um, and I joined a few months after that.
0: Can you tell us the story behind the company itself? Because I noticed that wine consumption in the US, I think has doubled in the past 10 years, 20 years, like that, and it was it was stagnant from the 1980s up to almost 2000. Did, did Wink come about to try and capitalize on that, or was it more than a wine company?
1: Yeah, I would say today we probably see ourselves more than more than just a wine company, but I think at the inception, it was really a couple of things. I think, number one, wine was incredibly inaccessible, right? Like, in order to get the story and try wines from around the world, you really relied on tasting rooms. And it was really bringing that tasting room online where you could get the story, you could understand where it was from, what it's paired well with, and you could get that delivered right to your door. You could get it from one spot, a wine from Argentina, a wine from South Africa, a wine from Napa, and a wine from France all at once. And 11 years ago, that was a pretty revolutionary concept. If you think about how far e-commerce has come in that time, it was relatively nascent back then, especially as it pertained to this sort of wine club or wine subscription model. So really kind of paving some path in terms of accessibility of wine to to the next generation of consumers was kind of how it originally started. And I think focusing on uh, that audience has been in our DNA ever since then, right? Now, even though that we've focused outside of wine, we're really focused on bringing people together and creating great experiences by creating... These innovative beverage alcohol brands for those next generation of consumers, whether it's in wine, ready to drink cocktails, sake, et cetera. That's really what we're focused on.
0: Running a marketing department, are you thinking mostly about social media apps? Are you still sending out mailers? What are some of the levers or avenues that you think are, are really important? for someone you know, marketing in a a fast-growing company?
1: Yeah, I think it's really dependent on what you want to execute. So I'll give two examples. One is we do marketing for Wink.com, which is our wine club. And the beauty of running marketing for an e-commerce business is that everything is testable. So of course, we have our key social media channels. We work with influencers. We work with affiliate partners. We work, we advertise on Google. But if we wanted to do something like send direct mail, Right, run an experiment. If we wanted to do TV, we'll run an experiment. We'll understand how it contributes to our overall media mix and make data-driven decisions and then continue to retest those hypotheses and those tests that we had done maybe one or two years ago to make sure consumer psychology and mindset shifts all the time. So to make sure that what we're doing is still relevant. Another example of marketing where it really requires a lot more knowledge of consumer psychology and, quite frankly, a lot more marketing expertise is the type of marketing that we're doing for our brands. So Summerwater Water is our top rosé. It's one of the largest rosés in the country. And this year was really the first year that we put a lot of marketing power behind it. Now, for Summer Water, most of the sales are on the wholesale side of the business. So it's a three-tier distribution channel where we go through distributors and they sell into retailers. And retailers want to see that product going off of their shelves. So you can't really run a digital ad and then expect that person to drive on over to a target and pull that product off a shelf. You have to think a little bit outside of the box. So that's really focused on key geographies, in real life events, deep partnerships with publications, strong PR, as well as kind of the digital aura behind that. So it's really different types of marketing depending on the goal that you're trying to accomplish and the channel that you're trying to sell into.
0: Do you work with the winemakers pretty closely or? Yeah,
1: yeah. So we actually have an internal team of, of winemakers. So we don't actually own any vineyards or, or production facilities. What we do for the most part is we enter into um, grape, grape contracts with existing vineyards and our winemakers are going on the ground, choosing, picking the grapes, helping create that wine. Um, and obviously responsible for, for the end product itself, but that allows us to be incredibly dynamic in, in how we source.
0: That's great. Are you working backwards at all? So in your role, you're seeing tons of data. You're you're probably in wing one of the people closest to the consumer. Does any of that data trickle back down into the wine itself? Maybe making adjustments to the labels? Oh,
1: absolutely. That is that is the key way in which we produce products and brands and think about innovation. Like we have the beauty of this online platform where we can understand what products are selling. We can also get into a few key experimental areas, put it on the site in a very low risk way and see how it pulls through. We could look at click through rates relative to other products. We could look at purchase rate, repeat orders, reviews, et cetera, to really inform our production plan for the following year. Of course, there's going to be a little bit of delay when it comes to wine, since we're on an annual harvest cycle, but we definitely use all of the data that we get from our consumers, what they're telling us, what's pulling through to help us innovate into future brands and products. If you had two products with the same exact juice but different labels, and one of them's pulling through more than the other, and one of them has higher reviews than the other, maybe that one has a stronger label and brand story that consumers are, are just connected to. One anecdote that we like to use is that, you know, if, if a winemaker tells you a good story about a glass of wine, you're guaranteed to like it. And so, a lot of it's about that storytelling in terms of what's what's behind it, what's behind that bottle.
0: That's funny. Is that a real example, or do do you have you know different wines, but the only difference is the different? I say same wine, but different labels that have different ratings.
1: No, no. But it's an example of something that we could do, yeah. and we have we have that that consumer data and that consumer connection to to tell us that.
0: Good. Okay. What are as much as you can tell us, I would say, are, are there any major projects on the horizon that you're very excited about at Wink?
1: Yeah, I'm actually really excited about a lot of our upcoming products in the innovation pipeline. I know we were talking about Wink a wine company or a beverage company, but really expanding outside of the wine space is really interesting, as well as continuing to create products in the areas of wine that are that are growing. So organic, better for you types of products. Prosecco and bubbly is a large growing category. Orange wine is a large growing category. And of course the entire ready to drink cocktail trend is is, is large and growing both wine based and spirits based. So I'm really excited to see kind of consumer adoption and reaction as we expand out of wine, especially as it pertains to the Wink.com membership, because so many people have joined it to be part of a wine club. But when we're able to offer them all of that, plus other beverages that they consume, I think that will create a really exciting experience and kind of a go to shop for, for anything kind of the next generation wants to drink.
0: That is exciting. So, so whenever you say expand outside of wine, you're thinking about those ready-to-drink cocktails and other other beverages primarily? Yeah, we
1: already have. I mean, we have uh, we launched a sake um, a few months ago on the website, so we do have some experience outside of wine. But I think, you know, everything from, think of categories that we could possibly get into, we've also done hard ciders in the past. We could do hard kombucha, we could do ready-to-drink cocktails, seltzers, like there, there's a lot of possibilities out there. And obviously, we know that, you know, today's consumer drinks more than just one type of beverage. And so that's really exciting to be able to kind of fulfill all of their needs across that.
0: Are you shipping globally or just in the L.A. region, United States? Yeah,
1: so we ship in the United States direct to consumer. But our products, especially Summer Water, which is our largest brand, is available in retailers nationally. I mean, Canada, Mexico, I believe we're in Costco in Mexico. All over Europe, India, Philippines, etc. I've definitely seen our products available across the country or across the globe, which is really exciting. So
0: it's quite an operation. How many people do you all have at Wink at this point? Yeah, we're at
1: about eighty people full time.
0: Wow. Okay, I expected that number to be higher, just given the the reach. And you know, I I've seen Wink branding, and I may have I may have gotten some promotional materials and and, and different types of you know purchases, maybe. Food delivery, that sort of thing. Sure, yeah. Well. Yep, yep. That is that's a very impressive impact for for a lean team.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that I love about kind of the, the startup world, although we are a publicly traded company, we're a small company yeah. and we're and we're lean and people wear multiple hats. Um, but it, it enables us to do everything that we do with the team that we have today.
0: Were you there for the IPO?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was. That was last November.
0: Oh wow. Well congratulations. Thank you. Thank How you. Is, has your work changed at all? Is that changed?
1: I mean, it's definitely, you know, we probably picked the worst time to, to IPO. <laughs> What's happened to kind of growth stocks, especially in the consumer and direct-to-consumer uh, marketplaces, uh, has not been particularly great over the last six to eight months. But I think the key thing for us is to make sure that being public doesn't change anything in terms of the actual work, to keep our heads down, continue to execute against the strategy and the results will speak for themselves.
0: What are some of the major accomplishments that you're most proud of at Wink?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. I think one, when we think about the the direct-to-consumer business, I think one of the things around wine clubs is that all of them kind of have this introductory quiz that they promise you with some fancy algorithm will somehow magically match you to the perfect wines that fit your specific taste buds. All of that is a load of crap. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we did at Wink was really seek to deliver on a quiz that was relatable and made a lot of sense. So instead of asking whether a consumer likes their coffee with milk or not, or whether they prefer their orange juice with pulp or not, we just asked them about flavors that they like. And we choose wines with those tasting notes, foods that they like to eat and pair wines with them that match with their lifestyle and that would pair well with those foods, countries that they're interested in trying products from, and we tell them why they select, we selected that box for them. So really demystifying that entire process, which is really unique in the kind of wine club space if you look at the competitors. So I'm really proud of that. And then the second piece is the way in which we think about omni-channel marketing. I think, you know, we are unique in that we are a portfolio of beverage brands that sell online and in-store. And thinking about how we can craft a marketing strategy where a single marketing dollar not only drives positive ROI digitally on the direct consumer business, but also increases brand awareness so that that product is now pulling off of a shelf faster has been really interesting to go after. And we're seeing some great results with how we're doing that for Summerwater and other brands this year.
0: Good. So you've taken some major risks at a few different points in your career. Just as a helpful for our, our audience here, I think that those stories can help prepare them for the times that that they take those kind of risks. Were there any that you were particularly worried about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think going back to the anecdote I shared about Bird about, you know, I I took a risk to pursue my passion. I took a 50 percent pay cut. I had to sell my house because I could no longer afford the mortgage and move in with three roommates. And that was a huge risk that I took and a huge life change for myself. But then three months in, I was so miserable. I wasn't fitting in with the culture and I was on the verge of quitting. I was actually looking into going back to Deloitte. Luckily we had a major restructure and I had my role change. I was focused on this new ventures concept, got a much better manager that, that I could more closely relate to, but I was this close from that risk. Not being successful. And I'm glad I stuck it out just a little bit longer because I would have missed out on this whole large world of opportunity. So I would say that, you know, my decision was very close to being a poor one. I probably got lucky, but that's okay. If if something, if you take a risk and it doesn't work out, like really in the grand scheme of things, like we're all in the top 10% of the world by being born in the United States and having the opportunity to work in consulting, like these aren't really risks compared to, to the broader scheme of things. So I just I just keep that in mind and continue to go after what I feel like is important. And just thinking about the opportunity cost is that of like, we all have one life here, we don't know how long that is, so might as well make the most of it.
0: How did Bird win you over? I mean, it's. As a, as a recruiter, I can tell you, telling someone, hey, you're going to take a 50% cut to, to join this company, that's a tough story to tell, to make someone you know, convince someone to join your organization.
1: Yeah. Well, at the time, they were the fastest growing company uh, valuation-wise. They were the first company or the quickest company to achieve unicorn status, and they were at the height of their growth. And the promises were around how the equity that they were offering would be worth hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in the future. That equity is now worthless. Yeah. But that was kind of the promise and the allure that brought so many of us into, into Bird. And we actually had the option to take higher cash or lower cash, higher equity or lower equity packages, and chose the lowest cash package with the highest equity because I was such a sucker for that story.
0: Okay, well, well that that's exciting. I think a lot of us can relate to that, you know. the You join a startup for a lot of reasons, and one is is because you want to be a part of the growth story. And if you're really buying into that, then I think you make that that decision every time. Well, good Jay. Anything else that you think would be helpful to our to our listeners to hear about your story?
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I'd caveat with is that you know this is my story and my career that I've optimized for what I care about. I think nothing is is definite, and everybody has different passions for. You know, some people staying in the world of consulting or getting their MBA makes the most sense for them. Also for others, they may not be in a position to take as many risks as I did. Perhaps they have a family back home that they have to take care of, et cetera. So I say this with the caveat of, you know, everybody comes from different backgrounds and everybody's optimizing for something different. And I've kind of been optimizing for what's best for me and my personal situation, but really encourage everybody to to not take any of this as definitive or exactly what they should do more so as context and another experience that they can help use to inform their decisions hopefully
0: good well good jay thanks so much for visiting eca headquarters and and for joining us on beyond consulting
1: yeah thanks for having me it's been a great time